Good morning. It's my honor to be in the pulpit this morning of a good friend, uh, Paul. And I feel uh, kind of the burden of standing in a place of a man that I know is one of my favorite and best and most gifted preachers I know. If we gather in worship today and we do not hear a word from God, then our time has been wasted. We can gather and we can sing and we can hear good music. We can connect with people and that's a wonderful, beautiful thing. But if we don't hear from God, that's, we've truly wasted our time. So let's open up the word of God and start there. Go to James chapter 3. James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. We're going to read all the way down from chapter 4, verse 4. And we'll pray that God's word would speak to us. Starting in verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above. It it is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Lord Jesus, these are your words and you are a living God present with us right now And Father, we would pray that you would speak to each one of us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I introduced a minute ago. My name is Barrett Johnson. I had the honor and privilege of uh, leading the marriage event this weekend with my wife, Jennifer. Uh, We're in town here to help be a part of that. And when we gather with a body of believers like this, there's always an encouragement that comes from being with people of faith that you feel like you know for a long time. When Christ in the middle of our relationships, there's some people I met uh, 70, 40, 40 hours ago, Friday afternoon, that I feel like I've been friends with forever. And there are those people in this room right now. And so I consider you my friends. I consider you my family because of even time we've spent together this weekend. Um, also in the room, again, Paul and Cherie, dear friends from forever, serving on staff with Paul at uh, Johnson Ferry in Atlanta, where we served for nine years before starting our nonprofit. Some of our years of ministry with the Jimenezes were the most rich in our lives. Um, join my wife over here is our friends at the Lucas, who also live in Greenville now. Jason serves on the board of our ministry, and uh, just dear friends, the kind of friends that you walk through life with, and they're willing to, to speak truth in your life, even if you don't like what, they, what you hear from them. And the kind of friends that when they speak those difficult words, you, you feel it as a wound sometime because it hurts, because it's real and it's raw. But they're the friends you go, oh, I love you for saying that because you're God's bringer of grace to my life. Even friends of Lakes down here in the third row who are dear friends from Texas from 15 years ago. It's so refreshing to see people that you know and love you've done life with. 
So again, we're among family. And so as a part of that, the next 28, 30 minutes, I want to share some truth from the word that might insightful for us, but hopefully will be word, words of God for each of us where we're at. And I want to talk about conflict, and I want to talk about peace in relationships, and, and what gets us distracted and derailed from peace in our most primary relationships, and how we can operate with wisdom as James speaks to us in those key relationships, and maybe what distracts us from those things. Because here's the reality of my life. I can look at my world, the world around me, what's happening in our economy, what's happening in politics right now, what's happening on the world stage politically, and I can just be, I can be overwhelmed and stressed out and just have this raw, empty feeling inside my gut that says, things in our world are not as they should be. They promised us 65 years ago when they started the United Nations at the end of World War II that it would cast away and put aside all wars because the United Nations would solve our problems and bring peace to our entire world. How's that working out for us? There's more conflict and more unrest and more uncertainty now than ever before. And again, I can look at our presidential race all through 2016 and it just makes me sick watching what's happening in our nation. And I can be worried and troubled by those things. I can, I can even look at an economy that's not strong or that's in unrest. I mean, this is difficult. But I can endure all those things in our world if I can walk in the doors of my home and connect with my wife and be with my kids and those closest to me. And if those relationships are good and healthy and rich and satisfying, I can still, in spite of what our world is doing, I can lay my head on my pillow at night and go, okay, God, we're okay and my family relationships are okay, we're going to be okay. In spite of what the world's doing, I can be at peace because I'm at peace with the people that are most important to me. That's how I feel most times. Is that how you feel? Well, if that's true, then what happens if those close relationships with those in our family and those in the body of Christ, what if, what if my relationship with my wife or my kids, what if those relationships are not good? And there's conflict there, and there's, there's not peace. And maybe I'm not operating from a place of, of a generosity and, and sacrifice, but I'm operating from a place of selfishness and what I want and how I want it. And it causes a rift in the relationship I have with my precious wife or my children. When I lay my head on my pillow at night and those things are not good, I go, uh, I'm, in, I'm not at peace. I'm in unrest because my key relationships are not good. James speaks to maybe how we can resolve that. And so what we're going to look at this morning is three key things. We're going to look at a key to operating with wisdom in relationships. We're going to take a look at maybe how we can know those things that are true that we need to do, but yet still blow it and still mess it up. Then we're going to look at three key questions for self-examination to see how we can align ourselves with God's design for operating with wisdom. And so I'll go back to the Word, and we'll look at the Scripture and let God's word speak to us, and I'll point out some things about how we can see the operating with wisdom, how we can know these things, and what's going on in our hearts where we still blow it, and then again, some diagnostic questions for us. Go back to James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. James asks this question, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Wisdom in relationships is rooted in gentleness. And we reflect and consider the wise people we know in our world, in our history. I think of like people like Gandhi. You can watch a great movie about Gandhi that was made in the early 80s. And this great leader in India who led a revolution against the British Empire. He was a wise, wise person. But he led with gentleness. You don't ever hear him say, that Gandhi, he's a hothead. That Gandhi, he's got a temper. That Gandhi, he was always in it for himself. You never hear that. No, he was gentle. He was, self, he was serving of others. 
He looked for ways to lay down his life and offer wisdom and truth to situations at bay. That's wisdom. It's rooted in gentleness. We contrast that gentleness and tenderness and wisdom in our relationship with the world's idea of wisdom. Verse 14 says this. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. And we can be self-centered and even arrogant in our relationships, wanting our way, demanding our way, getting involved in a conflict with someone we love, our spouse or our child, and think, I'm not going to lay this down until I get my way. Until in this conflict, that other person says, no, you're right and I'm wrong. That's selfish. And we can, it even says you can even lie to yourself, lie against the truth. I can convince myself, no, I have righteous negation. I have a right to fight for what's truth and what's right. And I'm going to keep on fighting at the expense of my best to most meaningful relationships because I've got a demand to be right. That is the world's wisdom, and it is so faulty. Verse 15, this wisdom is not that which comes from above, but it's earthly, it's natural, it's sinful. And the word even used in my Bible, New American Standard, says it is demonic. When I word, read the word earthly and natural, I go, well, we're all human. When I read the word demonic about that kind of self-centered attitude brought to our relationship, what's in it for me? What are you doing for me? What are you doing to make me happy and make me satisfied in this relationship? And for you to see my way, that selfishness is rooted in the demonic. It's not just, well, I'm being human. It's being of the enemy. It's a scary place to be. Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Have you got a relationship in your life right now where there's some disorder? It's not at peace. It's not at rest. There's probably because there's some jealousy and there's some selfish ambition in your heart. It contrasts again with verse 17. The wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, and without hypocrisy. This is the kind of love we've got to show towards one another. It's kind of love as a man that I've got to show to my wife. Kind of love that us as parents have to share with our children, with our grandchildren, with those we're in the body with. Love that is pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. It goes on to say, And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You want to see righteousness in your life, righteousness that reflects the heart of God, that looks like Jesus? Then plant peace. When you plant peace in your life and the relationships you have and those around you, in gentleness and in wisdom, you plant that peace, it blooms and blossoms. Righteousness, you reflect the heart of our Savior. And what gets in the way of that? We know that's true. I'm not, I'm not saying any in the word, and God's not speaking in the word here. Anything that we go, oh, I never thought of that before. We know this is true. But what gets in the way of it? Why can't we do this in our most important relationships? What gets in the way of our bitter hearts? Chapter 4, verses 1 through 4 answers that question. Here's what gets in the way. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? So again, think, think of your most important relationships. Your, your marriage, your children, or your grandchildren, those are close to you, your, in work or family. What is the source of your quarrels and conflicts? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Your desire for pleasure, your desire for what I want, what's going to make me happy. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and you, do not, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And then it says, well, I'll ask. I'll ask of God. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your, on your pleasures. 
And if God were to anything right now, he would take our hearts out. And God did this most fundamentally in my life when we were considering adopting a, a child. We have four biological kids, and our fifth born is adopted. She's sitting right over there on an iPad. She's not even listening right now. That's okay. iPad's more interesting than I am, I guarantee, every single time. But in that process of considering, should we do this? God reached in my chest and pulled out my heart and showed it to me and said, Barrett, you're, you're against this. You don't, you, you're, not, you're reluctant to pursue this passionately like I, I pursue this passionately, God spoke, because of your heart. Your heart is focused on what's comfortable for you and what's easy for you. And a, a, when you have a 16-year-old through a 7-year-old, four kids, adopting a newborn is a lot of work. And it requires you to lay down your life and sacrifice and make yourself uncomfortable. God said to me in my heart, he says, you know what, Barrett, I want to inconvenience your life. I want to disrupt your life as you follow me. I want to make your life difficult and uncomfortable and uneasy because you have to depend upon me and you step into places and situations that are hard that the rest of the world won't step into because of your love for me and what I've done for you and you want to pass it on to people around you. And so, yeah, that's your heart. You're self-centered, Barrett. And I saw that and I was convicted and I said, God, I don't want to be that. Do whatever you have to do in me and my life to make me not self-centered and not rooted in my own life. And for me, that was having a fifth child. And God changed my heart and changed my life. I asked for the wrong motives many times. Verse 4. Look at the first two words. In the New American Standard, it says, you adulteresses, you adulterers. He's saying to the people reading this in the body of Christ, he's saying to you and I, if you think this way, you are an adulterer. You are double-minded. You have one foot in one relationship with me as your God, and you're also messing around with somebody else. You're an adulterer. Why? Look, it says, you adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And right there is the crux of what's wrong with our hearts in the body of Christ. This isn't a sermon for folks out there in the world. It's a sermon. It's a, it's a word from God for you and I in the body of Christ. Our hearts are corrupt because we want what the world has to offer, and we also want what the church and what Christ has to offer, and our hearts are divided. That's the reason I operate with selfish motives in my relationships, because I want pleasure. I want what's in it for me over here, but I also want God to bless me. And that's what's come so convoluted in the church today, convoluted in the church today. And it started in the Garden of Eden. It started with Adam and Eve. It started with Satan whispering to Eve a lie. And the lie was not reject God outright and come over here to my side. The lie of the enemy in the garden and the lie to you and I is this. You know what? God's fine. God's good. Yeah, embrace him. It's, it's good. Yeah, go to church. Be comfortable. Have a community of faith. That's great. But, but that's not all there is. You, you need something else over here in the world. The world has to offer. The pleasures and the joy and the satisfaction that comes from what the world offers us. You need both to be fully satisfied is a lie that we've bought into in the church today. And that's corrupted our hearts. There's something that evangelists say a lot. I think Billy Graham started it. I love Billy Graham. He's done more for the body of Christ and to build the kingdom than any man in the history of the church. I love Billy Graham. But Billy Graham says something that is theologically wrong. At the end of a lot of his messages over the years and his big days of revival preaching, he would say this. Inside every man is a God-shaped void that only he can fill. Inside every human, there's a, there's a heart-shaped, God-shaped void right there that only he can fill. And 
Well, that sounds really good. What that presumes is to say this, fill your life out with everything the world has to offer, life and pursuits and joy and pleasures. Everything is good. Fill it up to those things. And then the icing on the cake, the final piece of the puzzle is God, this one little thing that God fits in your heart. And that's a, that's a lie. You don't have a little God-shaped void right here in the little place of your heart that finishes things or completes you. Your very existence, your entire life is a God-shaped void that only he can fill. And yet we want a little bit of this and a little bit of God along for the ride. It's as if in the church today, and I'm preaching to you and I'm preaching to me and I'm preaching to every church in the Bible Belt where we think this way. It's as if we believe that somehow, how do I say this? I don't want to be offensive. It's as if we say that somehow the church and our pursuit of Christ is just one more part of the American dream. And the American dream is about get a good education and get a good job, have a nice house in the suburbs, find a good spouse, raise 2.5 children, have a dog, maybe a boat or a lake house, get your 401k growing, get a country club membership, and, oh, and be a part of a good church. And that's just one part of our lives that fulfills us and makes the American dream. Well, what God wants to say to each and every one of us is this, you can't have both the world and what God has to offer. And when you try to do both of those, put a foot in both of those worlds, you end up conflicted and you operate from selfish motives and we bring that into our relationships. When my heart is pursuing God, I say, God, nothing else matters. Everything I have, my work, my neighborhood, my life, everything I do is all about opportunities to extend your kingdom and join you in the work that you want to do in this world. Then my heart gets focused on Christ and it's transformed by Christ. And then I bring that person who says, you know what, it's not in it for me, it's what's in it for the kingdom of God. And I bring that person to my relationships and my marriage and my kids. And it's all about building the kingdom of God together, not make me happy. Meet my selfish needs. It's a fundamental shift we've got to make. I can know the truth in James 3, but James 4 reminds us that the problem is that our world and our life and our mind is in both the world and the kingdom. Three tests you can ask yourself. Three questions. Three things to explore that might help you to see if you're aligning your life with God in this area and these things or if you've missed the boat completely. The first one is the gentleness test. We mentioned gentleness in our relationships and our marriages and our, our kids and our grandkids and those that are closest to us. The gentleness test. Do you operate with gentleness? Because gentleness is the root of wisdom. James teaches right there. Gentleness. A great way to consider this is to imagine that your life is like a movie and you're the star of that movie. When you go to the theater and watch a great movie, there's a hero that you're rooting for for two hours. Almost always that hero that you're rooting for is a guy that's humble and a guy that's gentle that you want to pull for. Now maybe he's flawed. Maybe he's like a, you know, a gladiator guy and he's a warrior. But by and large, he's a humble and spirit person willing to give his life away for the lives of others. And you want to, you want to root for him. You want to cheer for him. What if your life was a movie and you're the leading character? If someone's watching your life and watching you as a leading character, would you be the type of person that others would root for and want to see successful? Or are you operating in a way in your relationship, a way that makes you go, ooh, I don't want to root for them. Ugh. Because you're not gentle. The gentleness test. How do people see you? The second test is the selfishness test. The selfishness test. Are you looking out first for yourself or for the interest of others. And this is a difficult test because most of the time, if we're not careful, we are motivated by what makes me feel good, what makes me happy. 
even in our love relationships and marriage. If you're married today, you know that your spouse is probably the greatest gift God has given you. But even our idea of love can be messed up by the world. I shared this the other day at the marriage event, Friday night or Saturday morning. Yes, a couple getting married. Why do you want to get married? Well, because we love each other. Well, tell me about that. Why do you love him? Why do you love her? The answers you get typically, the answers that we give, is typically answers like this. I, I love him because of what he does for me. I love him for all the things he brings to my life. I love him because he makes me a better person. I love him because he makes me so happy. Well, all those reasons you love somebody are rooted in not love of the person. They're rooted in, they're rooted in love of self. I love what you do for me. I love how you make me happy. I love how you make me a better person. All those things you do in my life make me better and more awesome. So I love you. What happens when your spouse is no longer able to bring those things to your life? What happens when there's an illness or an accident or something happens and your spouse cannot do anything for you whatsoever? They add no value to your life. They, They have nothing to bring to make you happy. Do you still love them or do you stop loving them? Hopefully our love is rooted in something bigger than what you do for me It's rooted in a Christ-like, Christ laid down himself for me and will love me no matter what I do, I will do likewise with you whom I love. I will lay down myself for you no matter what. Throughout the scripture, we see this theme of dying to self. We're called to die to self, to, to, to kill the old fleshy part of us and let the new life in us in Christ explode forth from us, where we, our old self dies and a new life arises. Because that's important and critical to us in our lives because when we die to self, we don't care what's in it for us anymore. You ever been to a funeral? You had a coffin, a casket right here and the, the remains of a loved one there. Does that remains, does that fleshy shell of that person, do they care what they look like? Do they care what's in it for them? Dead people don't care anymore. That's a bit morbid, I realize. But we're called to be dead people to our flesh. We don't care anymore about what's in it for us. We give our lives away for others. The selfishness test requires us to look at ourselves and go, am I looking out for my own interest or am I giving my life away for those that I love? That's the call on the follower of Jesus Christ, particularly in our relationships. The gentleness test, the selfishness test. The final one's the motive test. The motive test. What's your motive? Are you motivated primarily in your life on building the kingdom of God or on building your own kingdom? You you motivate primarily by building the kingdom of God and what will last after you're dead and gone in eternity or on living this life in this world, building your own kingdom. And if we're honest, most would say, I'm kind of more focused on building my own kingdom. And here's the way you know, here's the way you test. What do you think about when you're not thinking about anything at all? When your brain is on neutral, on autopilot, and you're just kind of in a lazy, not think about much. Guys, when you go to your nothing box, okay? We talked about that at the marriage retreat. When you're in neutral, what, what does your mind wander to? Does it wander to things of eternity and things of the kingdom of God, or does it wander to things of the flesh and things that will make you happy? Building your own kingdom. Again, the word says we can't live in both of those worlds. We can't at all. We are called to build the kingdom of God. That's why we're here. But take your two fingers real quick. Two fingers, everybody. Put it on your pulse. Find your carotid artery in there, whatever it is. There's probably a heartbeat in there somewhere. Probably. I can never find mine. What's wrong with me? It's in there somewhere. You have a heartbeat, though. 
But Scripture says you're not a citizen of this earth. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a citizen of heaven. But for some reason, God chooses to leave you on this earth, and he wants to leave you on this earth so you can join him as long as you have a heartbeat on building a kingdom of God. That's the purpose of your life. That's the reason you are still here. And the time we have is very, very short. In the early service, right up in here on the balcony, um, I'm not sure still what happened. You'll find out later on, but an older lady had a medical emergency, and they brought in a, you know, saw the fire truck outside. They brought her out on a gurney. I, hopefully she's well. But I've been in services before where someone met their maker in, on a Sunday morning at church. I can remember that time is so short. And we have to realize that our purpose in this life is to reach others for Jesus Christ and extend the kingdom of God. Let me conclude by making an application to us in the church today because this applies in peace and wisdom and gentleness in our most important relationships, but also concludes with how we pursue the world and reach them for the kingdom. I want to just remind you that your church is like most churches in the Bible Belt and that there's a beautiful place and there's good people gathered together to worship in a big room like this and on TV over there in the, uh, in the fellowship hall in the modern worship service. There's people gathered together here and you love this. You love community. You love people. You love, you know, the connection you have here. This is a rich part of your life and God bless us all for it. We have that. But you know what, I, I, I'd say with some friends in, our friends of the Lucas uh, over in Greer, I had a 25-minute drive to church. And that 25-minute drive to church this morning, I passed at least 35 churches. There's plenty of churches in our area. But you know what? Those folks in churches are being blessed and having a great time celebrating what we know of our Savior. But the people who are in bed right now or who are reading the paper in their pajamas or on the golf course or whatever they're doing, Folks that are not in church, what we're doing here this morning is not even a blip on their radars. They could care less about what happens in this place on Sunday mornings. They didn't wake up this morning thinking, should we go to church? Maybe, we probably should. should we? No, maybe not. not. There's no tension in their life whatsoever. This is a completely different world we live in. And the world out there is not going, maybe we should go to church. Let's find a good church. Most of the folks who are not in our places of worship right now are in the bed this morning or they're in their pajamas going, what a great day it is. We're not even a blip on their radar. Our God is not a blip on their radar. And we can build a beautiful church. We can offer great events and programmings to reach the community but they're not coming to us anymore. You'll have occasionally folks that come to the doors, occasionally exploring it. Most folks that come to your church, exploring your church, and go to the Welcome Center and say, hey, tell me about where I can find a good Bible study class, a good life group. Most of those folks are already folks who know Jesus. And they're coming from the other church over there that's dying, and they want to find a church that's got life in it, and they're coming here. But they're not being rescued from hell. They're just other Christians coming to find another good church. What are we doing as a church and our churches in general to take what we know of Jesus out into the world and to care with compassion about a lost and dying humanity? Because they need us and they're not coming here anymore. We've got to see our church not so much as a, as a cruise ship but more as an aircraft carrier. Cruise ships are beautiful and they're wonderful and you get together and it's comfortable and oh, this is nice. But the church isn't meant to be a comfortable place for Christians. It's meant to be a place where you get empowered and equipped to go out into the world on mission with purpose and intention. When you come to church on Sunday mornings, you should not leave here with just a warm, fuzzy feeling that it was great to be in the house of the Lord. There's a part of that. 
But when you leave this place every Sunday morning, there should be a tension in your heart going, I know this God, this God has been rich and full and true and he has changed my life and I know people out in the world who don't know him like I know him. What am I doing to take him to them? And I'm gonna invite them to church is no longer the right answer because they don't care what happens in here. They wanna see a life that's being lived out, that's been dramatically changed by Savior that will help them do likewise. And that requires us to tell what we know of Jesus. We've, we've used the old phrase, uh, old dead guy, church father years ago said, I think it was Augustine or somebody said, share the gospel always, use words if necessary. It means live a, live a life of testimony and occasionally speak the words of gospel. We've taken that to be marching orders. We've taken that to be prescriptive. As if I'm going to live my Christian life before people and they'll see my faith, and they'll see my witness, and they'll be compelled to be transformed and meet Jesus like I know Jesus. That, that just doesn't happen, if we're honest. I mean, if, if you choose, like a great example, if you choose not to, not to partake of alcohol, it's a line for you, I'm not going to drink. That's a great line to draw for your own conscience. Beautiful. But you think to yourself, I'm going to be at a party and everyone else will be drinking a beer or drinking wine. I'll choose to abstain. And by doing that, someone's going to go, you know what, I've, I'm having a beer. I'm noticing you weren't having a beer. Tell me of this Jesus. Has that ever happened to anybody? No. It doesn't work that way. We've got to live a life that's transparent and real and shows that God is working out his will in us and giving us purpose and meaning and something bigger than what this world has to offer. But then we've got to tell people what we know of him and how he's transformed our life and how he can transform theirs. And it starts with a burden on our hearts. And I'll close with this. One way we can tell, one way we can tell that we don't have a burden for the lost and we care more about us is by what happens. And this is, again, this is not this church. This is the church I served at for nine years in Atlanta, which is very similar to Taylor's. So I would guess that your experience here is similar to my church. But it's in our life groups where we're in community. And it's rich and full, and it's our friends, and we love being in that community. And God bless that. That's a good thing. But in those moments when we share prayer requests, I guarantee when you share prayer requests in your life group at this church, 97% of them are about keeping saints out of heaven and have nothing to do with giving, keeping uh, sinners out of hell. I guarantee 97%, because in my church as well, 97% of prayer requests are about who's ill and who's sick. And we need to pray for people who are ill and sick. We're commanded to do so. Don't stop doing that. But we need to pray a whole lot more for that guy sits next to me at work who doesn't know Jesus that I'm trying to share my faith with. Or the new couple that moved in next door to us who took some brownies to Sunday morning as a chance to build some relationships with to share the gospel with them. Or my child or my, my friend or someone that I know who does not know Jesus and it tears me up and I'm praying my guts out. Would you as a body join me in praying for them and praying that God would give me through the Spirit's power opportunities to connect and share and speak truth so that they can know the Jesus that I know. Because right now, their condition is they're going to hell without a Savior, and I can't stand it. We should leave this place every Sunday morning with that kind of burden and that kind of urgency to take what we know of Jesus to a world who desperately needs him. That's real wisdom. That's proof of not being double-minded, but being saying, I'm going to put my life and put my hope, put my trust and put the direction and the urgency and the strength of my life into building the kingdom of God. Not, not building my own kingdom. And as long as we're double-minded, we'll be conflicted, and we're conflicted, we'll bring those conflicts into our relationships instead of being on purpose and being on task with the Father, with your spouse, with your family, with those who are closest to you, and say, let's do something bigger than just 
living the American dream. And that requires surrender. It requires a fundamental shift from one paradigm to another. Say, God, work and move and shift my mind and my heart and my urgency and the purpose of my life away from you being one part of the big picture of my life to you being the one that I serve and I lay my life down for just as you lay your life down for me and everything in my life then becomes about building the kingdom and joining you on mission. That's the purpose of our lives. It's the purpose of the church. It starts with surrender. And so whatever it might be in your life, in your relationships, in gentleness, in a, in, a, in a mind that's focused on one thing and not two things, focused on the kingdom, whatever it might be, I would pray right now as we conclude that you would consider, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? How do you want me to respond? How do you want to shift my life? Because again, in this moment, an invitation and a response time is not about who comes down the aisle to join the church or receive Jesus. It's about what you are doing to respond and walk out of this place if, if you encounter with God and his word and his truth, how it's going to change your life. And let's pray that he does that in each of us in some way. Father God, we thank you for your presence in this place and among your church and in this people. I thank you, Father, for the fact that your spirit resides in me as one that you have redeemed and changed and transformed. And I pray that I would day by day be able to die to myself and lay down my selfish wants and desires down in the name of pursuing you with all of my heart. And they have being able to give my life away for others, for my wife and for my children and for my friends and for those who are closest to me. But Father, most importantly, maybe to, to lay my life down to make sure those around me who don't know you as Lord and Savior, who are living a life that's hopeless and helpless and meaningless, that Father, they can meet you. And Lord, you'd use me to be a part of them meeting you. Father, bring in mind each of our hearts and minds right now, Lord, a face of someone that you've put in our lives to share your truth with. And then, Father, help us. Speak through us. Give us the words to say. And, Father, let us not be double-minded. Focus our minds on you and your kingdom and nothing else. I pray all this in the power of your son's name. Amen.